I want to invite you to find the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1 in your Bible. Matthew chapter 1. There's no greater or more important subject than the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we're going to take uh, the Sundays leading up to Christmas as an opportunity to look into different aspects of Jesus' birth. And we're going to begin with the one that's probably the most shocking. It's um, the one that many will find the hardest to accept. Maybe even an obstacle to uh, placing one's faith in Jesus, and that is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. I think probably among most people, um, Christians and otherwise, the virgin birth of Jesus is viewed as a sort of curiosity. What would you say if someone asked you the question, why was Jesus born of a virgin? Would you, would you have an answer to that question? I think what we might find if we asked a lot, of, a lot of different people from all backgrounds for an answer to that question, most people would view it as some kind of uh, extra special thing that, that God did to make the birth of Jesus more special. Or something like that. Sort of like if you go to a baseball game and they shoot off fireworks at the end. It's just something that makes it a little more special. Like, no, that wasn't really necessary for those to happen at the end of the game, but it made it a little more special. And maybe that's how a lot of people, maybe even you, view the virgin birth. Like, well, probably didn't have to happen, but isn't that neat that it happened? It's a quaint little part of the Christmas story that he was born of a virgin. Not necessary, but special. And we can treat the virgin birth as more of a curiosity than a necessity. And our purpose today is to understand why the virgin birth is not a curiosity, but actually a necessity. Why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. It matters, both because of what it says about him and because of what it means for us. Okay, so that's where we're headed today. Why does the virgin birth matter? What does it mean about Jesus? What does it mean about you? All right, so let's read the text. Uh, We're going to read verses 18 through 25 of Matthew 1. And then we'll do some work to understand what it means. All right. If you're able to stand this morning, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of the word. Matthew 1, 18, the description of how the birth of Jesus took place. This is what we find. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Father, these, uh, these words are really familiar, and we're, we're only looking into one aspect of them, but we, we come by faith believing that these are the grandest things that we can ever look into. And we admit at the beginning, Father, that the full meaning and even a full understanding of how these things took place is beyond us. But in, in love and reverent fear, we, we come to take another look because we love Jesus. We want to know him and understand why this salvation is so amazing and understand better what you have done through your son for us. And so I I pray for your help for that today, for myself and everyone gathered here, that um, a greater love um, would accrue to you because of the time that we spend. We ask in Jesus' wonderful name, amen. All right, be seated. We, uh, we learn here in Matthew chapter 1 that Jesus' mother, Mary, was um, found to be with child before she had come together with her husband. That's verse 18. We also learn in verse 18 that she was not with child by means of another man, as if she had been unfaithful to her betrothed husband, Joseph. We learn that the child in her was, according to verse 18, from the Holy Spirit. Jesus' birth was a virgin birth. And that is significant because of what it means about him and what it means for you. Let's talk about what it means about him First, all right? We'll, we'll say three things about what it means about Jesus Christ that he was born of a virgin. Here's the first one. The first thing it means is that he is fully human. Really, we're, we're focusing here just on the fact that he was born. It means Jesus is fully human. Orthodox Christian Doctrine confesses that Jesus Christ is fully man and fully divine. Fully God and fully man. Both, 100%. 100% human, 100% divine. Here's how we articulate that. Jesus possesses two natures in one person. Both a divine nature and a human nature. Two natures in one person. This doctrine was not created. It was drawn from the scriptures and confirmed as right belief or orthodox belief at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Jesus Christ, two natures in one person. Divine nature, human nature existing in one person without these four things, without confusion. 
His natures were not confused without transmutation. That just means that he didn't toggle back and forth between divine and human as if he was divine for six days and then on the seventh day he was human and then he spent three days being divine and he was divine when he worked the miracle but then he was human when he was tired. No, without transmutation. He wasn't toggling back and forth. Without confusion, without transmutation, without division. That means that it wasn't that he had a a divine soul but a human body. He wasn't segmented into different parts where part of him was divine and part of him was human. No, without division and finally without contrast, which just means that his two natures were not at war with each other. Two natures in one person. And we maintain, based on the biblical testimony, that Jesus Christ is, is fully human and the virgin birth is an important component of that truth. Think about this. Think about what God could have done. God could have sent his son and placed him in Jerusalem or in Galilee or wherever he wanted to. He could have placed him as a fully grown human. Just placed him at age 30 right there. Placed him on the planet. That was not God's plan. The plan of God was for Jesus to be not only fully human in substance, but also in experience. Therefore, Jesus did not bypass anything that's common to the human experience, even from conception, even all the way back to conception. Jesus, Son of God, eternal word, began his earthly life in the same way as every other human, just this tiny group of cells dividing, 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 developing over a period of time in the womb of his mother and then being delivered at the right time. He was dependent on his mother for nutrition, both in the womb and after he was delivered. Jesus knew the the full range of human experience from physical conception all the way to physical death. He knew the, the vulnerability of being an infant and the vulnerability of pain and death. See, he didn't bypass anything common to our experience. His humanity is and was full. That's the first thing that the virgin birth means about Jesus, that he is fully human. Here's the second thing. It means that Jesus is fully human, yet without blemish. Jesus is fully human, yet without blemish. We're talking about what the virgin birth means about him. And we confess that he was fully human and yet without blemish. We are all born, everyone in this room is born with two blemishes that Jesus didn't have. The first one is a sin nature. The blemish of a sin nature, that just means that we are all born with an inclination towards sin means that no one has to teach us how to sin. 
we just naturally inside want to oppose God. We're, we're born in opposition to God and his law. We don't want to obey, right? Like flies are naturally attracted to garbage. We are naturally attracted to sin. No one has to teach us how to do it. No one has to remind us how to do it. It's just part of our nature. That's the blemish of a sin nature. That's one kind of blemish that we have. It's not visible on the outside. You can't tell someone has that just by looking at them. It's on the inside, and it manifests itself in all kinds of different ways. We're also born with another kind of blemish. It's a related blemish, but it's different. We not only have a sin nature, but we bear what theologians call the guilt of original sin. That is to say that each of us is held guilty for the sin of Adam. There's a fancy word for that. God has imputed to us the guilt of Adam's sin. That means that we are reckoned guilty for a sin that we did not commit personally. God holds us to have participated in that sin by virtue of the fact that we are part of Adam's race. Adam's sin is imputed to each of us, each and every one of us. So what that means practically is that we are all born guilty before God, before we have even sinned in real time. And the basis for that doctrine, the doctrine of original sin, is largely what Paul writes in Romans 5. Romans 5 is an incredibly important passage for understanding these things, and I'm going to refer to it more than once today, but this is Romans 5.18. Paul writing, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. There it is. Adam's one trespass led to condemnation for all men. All humans, that is. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Now, this is not a sermon on imputation. It's not a sermon on the doctrine of imputation and what it means, but imputation is a really, really important concept in Christian doctrine. And as unfair as it might seem to you that Adam's sin is imputed to you and me, does that seem unfair to you? That we, each of us, could be held guilty for something that Adam did? If that seems unfair to you, think about this. How fair is it that our sin is imputed to Jesus Christ? See, the the imputation of original sin to you and me is not the only imputation that's present. God imputes our sin to Jesus Christ, he who kept the law perfectly. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. So yes, Adam's sin is imputed to you and me. I'm sorry that you don't like that. I'm sorry that you don't think that's fair. You're wrong. It's just. 
All of God's ways are just. He is right and we are wrong. He is holy and we have sinned. And what's more, he's taken your whole sin weight and imputed it to his son. How fair is that? This is owing to the reality that God is merciful. He's not only just, but he is merciful. And imputation doesn't end there. It's not just those two things that Adam's sin is imputed to us, our sin is imputed to Christ. There's one more astounding imputation, and that's the fact that the real righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to the sinner when they place their faith in him. It's not just that Christ forgives our sin, it's that God reckons us perfectly righteous to actually have the righteousness of his son. Though we earned it not, though we've done everything the opposite of righteous, we receive the righteousness of Christ. All this to say, for the whole human race, we are all born guilty before God and we bear the guilt of Adam's sin. Physical death, physical death, which comes to us all sooner or later, is the consequence of original sin. We don't die physically because of our own sins against God in real time. We die physically because we bear the guilt of original sin. Every human pays that consequence. That is the explanation. As, as sensitive as this is and as hard to think about as this is, and I, I, have you, I have you in mind and in my heart if you have lost a child in, in infancy or in, even before delivery, but this is the explanation theologically This is the explanation for why we sometimes lose infants who have not sinned on their own. They they bear the guilt of original sin. And we all die physically because of that guilt. That's why we still die physically even if we're a believer. Even if we've placed our faith in Christ, we still die physically because we bear the guilt of original sin. And we would never know that intuitively. Something that we only learn when we read through the scriptures and Paul explains to us, especially in Romans 5, why these things are so, that death came into the world through sin. And that one man's sin led to condemnation for all. Okay, what are we talking about? We're talking about why the virgin birth of Jesus Matters, And we're noting that the virgin birth on the one hand means that Jesus bears full humanity, yet with this critical difference from us. He bears it without blemish. Without the blemish of having a sin nature and without the blemish of having guilt for original sin. Okay, well, well why does he not have these blemishes? He's a human, isn't he? Fully human. Why is he alone accepted from those two blemishes? 
One reason is that he, he has no earthly father. He has no earthly, earthly father to pass on those blemishes to him. All of us are direct blood descendants of Adam. We can draw a line directly back to him. We inherit the sin nature and the guilt of original sin by means of our direct line to Adam. Jesus doesn't have this. His birth was by different means. It was a virgin birth, a birth involving only the female physical component. And here we're once again relying heavily on the Romans 5 assertion that sin came into the world through one man. Now wait a minute. Wasn't wasn't there a man and a woman in Eden and didn't they both sin? How is it that only the man is mentioned here? Sin came into the world through one man? What about Eve? Paul seems to be laying it all at Adam's feet. Yes, that's exactly what he seems to be doing. In Romans 5, Paul seems to lay the responsibility for the propagation of sin in the world on the man. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. And what we want to say is that Jesus Christ has no direct line to that man, that first Adam, the one that sinned against God. On the contrary, Jesus is held up as the second Adam, the Adam of different origin. And Adam with no blood ties to the first. And therefore he has not the blemishes of this man. Okay, guys, I'm going to deal with the elephant in the room. One thing that we can be very tempted to think at this point, and there's probably looks being given and elbows being thrown. One thing we can be tempted to think is that, well, if Jesus was without sin and he was without sin because he had no direct line to the man, what that must mean then is that all of the sinfulness of the humanity is by man. Therefore, the female sex is pure. Isn't that the natural thing to conclude? Well, I think there's a lot of good evidence that that's true. <laughs> I hope my Molly, I hope you, Molly's home today. She's not feeling well, but I hope she's listening to this at some point, right? There's a lot of evidence that that's true. The perfection of the female sex, yes, but John Calvin addresses this argument. He anticipates this argument, Calvin does, and then he addresses it in his institutes. And so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna pass on what he says. What he wants to emphasize is that it's very important to remember the role of the Holy Spirit in this endeavor. We read in the text that we're in today that Jesus' birth was from the Holy Spirit. Two times it's emphasized, from the Holy Spirit. Here's Calvin's argument. There was nothing pure about the female physical component. It wasn't that... Jesus was um, pure because the male was left out of the equation and only the female was left and that was pure and that's why he was holy without sin. Calvin says, no, remember the role of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who sanctified 
the otherwise impure, the likewise impure female component. It's the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in the endeavor that sanctified this child as holy. Now, if you have more questions than answers at this point, that's okay. So do I. There there is mystery present here that we should never even think that we could get around. We should rather look at the the quiet, mysterious inception of the God-man with wonder and awe and recognize there's an element of mystery here that we will never understand. This is not mathematics. Theology is not mathematics. We're looking into the unique work of God and trying to understand it a little bit better. Now let's let's deal with another objection, okay? At this point, you may be thinking, you know, it seems that Jesus lacking a sin nature in the guilt of original sin, like it seems like that makes him not fully human. Like we all have those things. And if he did not participate in that weakness that's common to us all, in what sense then is he fully human? I think that's a fantastic question to ask. And in response to that question, here's the answer that I would give. Remember back to Eden. Remember Adam and Eve in their pre-fall condition. And remember this, that, that God created everything good. And a sin nature and the guilt of original sin was not integral to their being in the beginning. That was not part of their constitution. Having the guilt of original sin and having a sin nature is not integral to what it means to be a human being. All we have to do is look back at the way that God created us and the way that we will be in the eternal state. The guilt for original sin and having a sin nature is rather a corruption of humanity. But it's not integral to what it means to be a human. That's why we can affirm that Jesus Christ has a full human nature. And is not deficient in any way because he does not share our corruption. Because sin was never part of our constitution at, at creation. This is rather a corruption of it. So the virgin birth means Jesus is fully human. That was our first, first thing that we said. He's shared our full experience means, secondly, that he's fully human, yet without blemish, because he has no blood tie to Adam, and because he is sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And all of that leads up to this one very important thing, this last thing that we'll say about what the virgin birth means about him. It means that he can be our sin bearer. He is uniquely qualified to be our sin bearer and bear the punishment for our sin. Think about what the qualifications for that role would be to bear our sin before God. 
Well, one qualification is that our sin bearer would have to be human because only a human can stand before God and represent other humans. We can't submit to God a a cow or a bird or a goat and say, hey, here's our substitute for our sin. No, we need a human to bear the guilt for humans. Well, the other qualification, I mean, that's that's not a big problem. We've got lots of humans around here who can do that. Billions of humans, except that the other qualification is that the human in question or the human needed would have to be a perfect human because the scriptures everywhere testify that only an unblemished sacrifice can be offered to God as payment for sin. Just go to Leviticus 4 and read through the requirements for the sin offerings. You'll see that word over and over again, unblemished, 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 unblemished. Well, where are we going to find an unblemished human? Certainly not here, certainly not me. Who among the human race is qualified to stand as an unblemished sacrifice to God? We just got done talking about how we're all born the sin nature that works itself out in sin and we bear the guilt of original sin. That's everybody from all of history since Adam and Eve. We need someone with the purity that only God has. But they also have to be human. Otherwise, they couldn't represent humanity. What we need then is someone who is fully God and fully man. They would have to be both in order to bear our sin. So they'd have to be born, except not by normal means, not with a human father to pass the blemishes on to them, but they have to be born of the seed of a woman. That was the prophecy given all the way back in Genesis 3. It's the seed of a woman who would overcome the enemy and be our savior. And now we see why the virgin birth is not simply a curiosity, but it's a necessity for you and for me if we have any hope of having peace with God. And it would be really easy to take this whole subject, and we've, we've dived into tons of technical stuff today. We could take this whole subject of the virgin birth and just treat it as some kind of abstract and fantastic diversion, which is fun to talk about around Christmas time, but has no real relevance or bearing on your life today. It happened a long time ago, and you, uh, you may even mock it. I think it's silly that people would believe such a thing. But what I want to impress on you in my my final few words here is that all of this was done for you. This was done for you. The virgin birth happened in history because you are a part of history. And you have accumulated a sin debt against God like I have. And people try to deal with their sin debt in lots of different ways. One thing people try to do is just pretend that it's not there. Pretend that God does not exist, nor does he hold people accountable. Sin is just a social construct, morality that's developed over time. 
in a context. Some people try to make up for all the bad that they do by doing more good. That is to say, some people just try to nice guy their way to heaven. There's nothing more in vogue right now than throwing doctrine overboard and just being a decent human being. And in the end, how could God not accept a decent human being? Surely, if one just loves people, what else could be required? We talked about what the virgin birth means about Jesus. Here's what the virgin birth means about you. It means you can't be your own savior. You cannot nice guy your way to heaven. If you could, if you could nice guy your way to heaven, all we would have needed as a human race is someone to show up on the planet and tell us how to be a good Samaritan and tell us how to be kind to each other. All we would need is a teacher. It wouldn't have to be anything special about that teacher, just an example of a life well-lived that we could follow. We would not need a virgin-born Jesus. You don't need a nice guy example. You need an acceptable blood sacrifice to God for your sin. That's what you need an acceptable blood sacrifice to God to atone for your sin. God decides what is acceptable, not you. All of your good deeds and courtesies added up and packaged and weighed in the scales are infinitely less of what God requires of you to be acceptable in his sight. Not just a little bit less. All of your good deeds and all of your courtesies are infinitely less. It's a shortfall that can't be measured. The fleeting, sinful thought that you had when you were 11 The fleeting sinful thought that you had when you are 11 was enough to condemn you to eternal punishment by God forever. That one thing was enough that happened all those years ago. That one thing, that one fleeting thought when you are 11 would have been enough to condemn you forever. And you say, how is that fair? How does that make any sense? Why should I be condemned forever? Because of that one thing, it was a thought. I didn't even do anything. I had a bad thought when I was 11, 20, 40, 50 years ago. How is it fair that God would condemn me forever for that. How does that make sense at all? Here's how that makes sense. No one, no one ever has rightly esteemed the majesty and the holiness of God. That is the great problem of our race, evidenced in our failure to see how that one sin could merit eternal punishment. The fact that we don't see how that could 
be so that we could be punished forever by that one thing, the fact that we don't see how that makes sense confirms the truth that none of us have reckoned with this God that we are speaking of. I proclaim to you a God who is a beautiful, majestic, and holy beyond our imagination. I can't describe him with words. Burning with holy love and mercy and completely just. And if you could see him, you would know in an instant, I am lost and I am undone completely. I am really glad you're kind to your neighbor. You need a virgin-born savior to take the punishment for your sin. Nothing else is acceptable to God. You need someone fully human like you, yet unblemished, so he can offer himself to God and be found acceptable. The virgin birth is not a curiosity. It's a necessity. The only other necessity is for you to admit to God that you have been a sinner from birth, that you are completely unable to change yourself, and place all your trust in this boy who was born for you. The Son of God was willing to become just what we needed him to be. That's the message of Christmas, that what God required, God provided. Amen. Father, your Son is wonderful beyond comprehension. Our debt against you could not be greater And yet the, the, the blessed second person of the Godhead was willing to humble himself to come and be just who we needed him to be so that that huge weight of sin would not separate us from you forever if we place our faith in him. Becoming the God-man so that he could be our substitute He laid down his life in our place. And with joy, we receive this gift from you. And we tell everyone everywhere, repent of your sin and place all of your trust in him. He's the only one. No other sacrifice will suffice. We can't be good enough. All we can do is stop. We confess it, Lord. All we can do is stop from striving to please you and place all of our hope in this little boy. We love you and pray in Jesus' name, amen.